This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, Ryan Johnson, who wrote and directed the popular comedic murder mystery Knives Out, has a new sequel called Glass Onion. It starts streaming on Netflix December 23rd. Ryan Johnson spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. Here's Sam. Glass Onion brings back the Southern gentleman detective Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, to uncover a new mystery. This time, tech billionaire Miles Braun, actor Ed Norton, has invited his closest friends, the group calls themselves the Disruptors, to his private island in Greece for a long weekend getaway during COVID to play out a murder mystery game. His invitation comes encased in a large, elaborate puzzle box that each guest receives and has to solve. His friends include a Connecticut governor running for Senate, the chief scientist at his company, a men's rights YouTuber, and a former model who now owns a successful sweatpants company and thinks of herself as a social media truth teller, but who is often just really offensive. Also invited, but whom we can't really call Miles's friend, is Andy, who was Braun's former business partner until he shut her out of the business. And Benoit Blanc appears much to Braun's confusion. Blanc tells him he received his own puzzle box and invitation. Ryan Johnson gets some wonderful performances from his cast of Craig Norton, Janelle Monet, Leslie Odom Jr., Catherine Hahn, Dave Bautista, Kate Hudson, Jessica Hennick, and Madeline Klein in this very entertaining comedy. As you might expect, the murder mystery game becomes very real, and Benoit Blanc finds himself in another whodunit. Along the way, Johnson skewers the culture of social media influencers and the cult-like worship of tech billionaires. Glass Onion is the sequel to Knives Out, and another Benoit Blanc mystery is expected. Ryan Johnson's other films are Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, and Star Wars The Last Jedi. Let's start with a clip from Glass Onion. The guests have arrived on Bronze Island, and Miles has a quick word with Blanc to ask him why he's there. Blanc hands him his invitation. I didn't send it to you. How many of these boxes did you create? Five, one for each of my friends. No test boxes, no prototypes. My, my puzzle guy barely got the five done in time and he apprenticed with Ricky Jay. And once the boxes are open and the puzzle's completed, is there any way to close them again? To, to reset them? Hang on, hang on. Someone reset the box. Someone reset the box. Oh, they sent it to oh, you oh, as a gag. Miles is doing a murder mystery. Let's invite Benoit freaking Blanc. Oh, it's so good. I am mortified. I, I don't... Why? I, I've got the predefinite detective in the world at my murder mystery party. That is so legit. Mr. Braun, I've learned through bitter experience that a, an anonymous invitation is not to be trifled with. Okay, look, come on. I'd love to have you visit me at my home. There, you've been invited. Well, You're an official guest now. Thrilled to have you. I mean, relax. Enjoy yourself. Hey, try to solve the murder mystery if you can. I don't want to toot my own horn, but it's pretty next level. I'm going to foil. I'll see you at the pool. That's Ed Norton and Daniel Craig in the new movie Glass Onion by my guest Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson, welcome to Fresh Air. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me. So Benoit Blanc is back for another mystery here. Um, when you were writing this story, what were the elements of the first movie that you knew you wanted to keep and some of the things that you definitely didn't want to have again? Well, this uh, a big part of 
making this movie was thinking of it not really as a continuation of the first one, but kind of going back to the source of inspiration for me for all of this, which were Agatha Christie's books. And as a big fan of Agatha Christie, I think there's sometimes a common misperception that she told the same story over and over, like the body in the library, yada, yada, yada. And anyone who actually is a fan of Christie knows the opposite is true. She was doing wildly different things with every book and taking crazy narrative swings and shaking up not just the location and, and the cast of characters and the type of murder, but she was mixing genres. She was uh, every single thing. You can, you can tell with every single new book why she was excited to write it. And that, I guess, was the main thing I wanted to do with this. I wanted to create another fun you know, murder mystery, but I wanted to tell the audience that if we keep making these movies, each one is going to be a completely different ride. So do you have a favorite uh, Agatha Christie detective? Well, Poirot was always kind of kind of my guy coming up. And um, in terms of the novels, I, I, I still think it's hard to beat um, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. In terms of the movie adaptations, uh, the original Death on the Nile with Peter Ustinov is my favorite. I feel like Ustinov um, made Poirot a, an intriguing character, but still got the essential humor of him. And uh, I always come back to that one. Now, one of the things about Hercule Poirot is that he has a very thick French accent, which which Belgian, Belgian. Play. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. I'm talking to a real fan here. A Belgian accent. Apologies. Um, and you know, Daniel Craig has a very thick Southern accent here, and even in the first movie, one of your characters describes it as a Kentucky Fried Foghorn Leghorn drawl. Did did you give him any notes about that accent? Well, when I first wrote, when I wrote the first script, I think I didn't want to freak out any potential financers, and so I described it as the slightest hint of a faint wisp of a gentle lilt of a southern accent. I used like eighteen adjectives um, to tamp it down, and then of course Daniel and I started going. We just we went to town. We 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 sent clips back and forth. My only directive was I wanted it to be a pleasing accent to listen to. And ultimately, we kind of settled on, um, it's largely based on Shelby Foote, the historian, um, who's uh, in some of the Ken Burns documentaries, is probably where people know him most from. But he's has a very, I think it's a Mississippi accent, but it's a very honeyed accent. And that's that's kind of what we aimed for. Now, you know, there's a lot of murder mysteries that require a huge suspension of disbelief to accept just like how the murderer committed the crime. Like there's all these crazy twists. Like, did you have to rein yourself in writing these where like, was there a point where like, oh, that's that's just too crazy. I can't. Go <laughs> well, if you, you've seen this movie, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of allowed myself to. Uh, to, to well, I mean, the, this film is a little tonally bigger than the first one. The first one is kind of, you know, it's about a family in New England and it's it's a little closer to the ground. This one, just out of necessity of who it's who and what it's about, um, the fact that there's a tech billionaire in the middle of it, just that, um, you know, it, it felt like it had to... <laughs> We had to raise our voices a little bit to match the carnival-like insanity that we've all experienced. It just keeps topping itself every time you turn on the news for the past six years. And a big part of these movies is trying to connect up with the present moment to, to use this form that's largely been seen recently as period pieces set in England and set a traditional whodunit in America right here and now. And... And so, yeah, it it it's, it gets a little it gets a little wacky, but that's 
to me, that's because this stuff has just been getting progressively wackier over the past however many years. Well, let's talk about some of the wackier characters that you have uh, in in Glass Onion. Uh, You know, in the first movie, you skewered this uh, entitled family of a very successful and wealthy mystery writer. Um, But in this movie, you're more targeting like social media influencers and, as you said, like tech billionaires. Um, Let's start with Birdie, played by Kate Hudson. Like she – was a former model. She now, during COVID, she created a sweatpants company that's become very successful. And she sort of thinks of herself as like this no-filter truth teller. Um, and she's often just tweeting like super offensive things. And she even went on Oprah and compared herself to Harriet Tubman. Like, <laughs> like so could you could you talk about her, Birdie's origins? Yeah, I mean, the instant I had the tech billionaire at the center that kind of informed who I was going to fill out the rest of the suspects with. And um, with Birdie, for instance, I mean, she is a very (laughs) over-the-top comic character. She is also, though, one of the suspects. She may very well have, you know, any one of these people could have done it. And so that means that she can't, that on the screen, it can't just become kind of, a joke, and when you have characters this broad, and a character like Birdie who's this broad, you need an actress with the uh, with the comic intelligence of someone like Kate Hudson playing it. Yeah, I mean, all all the acting is really great, even like the the smaller roles like Jessica Hennick and Madeline Klein. Like everyone's doing great work here, um, and that kind of brings me to Ed Norton, who plays the tech billionaire Miles Braun who's the kind of guy that does deals at ayahuasca ceremonies. <laughs> um, you know, there's a there's a tendency right now to worship tech billionaires as these infallible geniuses, um, even when their companies are perhaps harming, like, the democracy. Like, when you were writing Glass Onion, were you feeling particularly frustrated about tech billionaires? Well, I mean, it's odd. Like, I wrote this movie in 2020. I wrote it a few years ago. So the cast of characters of who we were talking about as tech billionaires has, has kind of shifted a little. Um, so it's odd that the movie feels, feels this relevant in the present moment, but it does. Um, I mean, I, while I was writing, uh, I found it instantly unuseful and kind of boring to start thinking about any specific person. Um, the instance of making fun of tech billionaires. I mean, it's fun, but it's also kind of easy and (laughs) not all that interesting in terms of actually building a movie around it. Um, I guess what was more interesting to me is the idea of these people and their place in society and our relationship to them kind of as Americans. I think we, we do have this uniquely American thing. I can speak for myself. I have it built into us. Um, of just instinctually mistaking wealth for competence or wisdom. And, and we also have this relationship with, this, with these folks where we, we want to sling arrows at them and make fun of them and, you know, quote, quote, tweet them and put them down on Twitter. But we also, though, all have that deep down thing inside where we also kind of want them to be Willy Wonka. You know, <laughs> we also want there like well maybe you don't bet against them you know so that tension yeah look to them for solutions yeah completely we think maybe they'll take us up in the great glass elevator and take us to mars he also uses this word disruptor a lot which was a very popular word in the tech world for a while this idea that um 
you have to break things to make things better. And he's very lazy in the way he uses it. Like he seems not really to think about what he's saying. At one point he even says, she disrupted herself. <laughs> she disrupted her own disruption. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So like that, that word seems pretty ripe as a target these days. Huh? Yeah. And you know, that's the other thing that I love about the murder mystery form is it's, you think about what it actually is. It's at its essence, it's building up a, little group of suspects who all have a power dynamic within the group, you're essentially building a little microcosm of, of society. And um, so it, it, it's a great, great tool that, for looking at systems and kind of examining systems that exist within society. That's why I was so excited to make a present day one that actually just engaged with America right now because I feel like it hadn't been used for that in a long while. All in the context of, of a fun murder mystery of this candy-coated shell. Um, so all to say that Miles is obviously at the top of this power structure. He doesn't actually want to disrupt anything. <laughs> he is sitting pretty. Disruption would not help him. It, really. it absolutely would not. And so um, the notion of disruption actually being applied to that would be actually horrifying to somebody like that. So that seemed interesting to me. Uh, Ryan, I'd like to talk about some of your earlier films, starting um, with your first movie, Brick, from 2005, which I really enjoyed seeing the first time I saw it and and just as much recently when preparing for this interview. Um, this is like a hard-boiled crime story that takes place in a high school. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the star of it. And like all the characters that you would find in hard crime story are here but they're just all teenagers. There's like the gumshoe detective. There's the femme fatale. There's the heavy, the kingpin. They're all like teenagers or very young adults. And one of the interesting things about the movie is like all the characters sound like they're right out of a detective film or a novel from like the 30s and 40s. So um, so how did that idea come to you of setting like a crime, a hard-boiled crime, particularly of like the 30s and 40s in like a contemporary high school? Well, I mean the pathway to it was – first of all, I was um – obsessed with the, the Coen brothers film Miller's Crossing and reading interviews with them led me to Dashiell Hammett's books, which I was familiar with film noir, but I never actually read the source. And discovering those books and the continental ops stories um, that he wrote just felt kind of like this visceral punch to the gut. And there was something so powerful about them. Um, and so it was kind of wanting to get trying to cut through kind of the haze of um, our collective nostalgia about film noir and kind of get to what I felt actually reading those books. And it was that combined with, I wrote it in my early 20s when I was right out of college and high school was um, something that I'd still fairly recently come out of. And there was something about um, kind of the stratified, terrifying world (laughs) of these detective novels that lined up with my emotional memories of, of high school. And so putting it in that setting both took away the audience's ability to lean on their preconceptions of, you know, of wet alleyways and Venetian blind shadows and fedoras. And you put it in a new setting to just so that we'd have to come at it fresh as an audience. It also connected up in a way with, um, with these kind of deep, dark emotional memories of, <laughs> of surviving high school. The dialogue sort of made me, I mean, it's, 
it's so estranged from my experience as a team, but it, it sort of reminded me of like that heightened sense of drama that when you were there. Absolutely. Age. The stakes feel life and death. <laughs> and and also yeah. it, it yeah. feels, I don't know, there's, you know, the, the, think about, you know, the detective going to the high society party and it feeling kind of like this, uh, this world that has rules that you don't quite know and feels kind of terrifying. And there are so many situations in high school that felt that way to me. So you you had like when you're writing you had a real sense memory of what that was all like. Um, it's not like I had an exceedingly traumatic high school experience, but I was definitely not popular in high school. I was definitely I had a good group of friends, but we did the place where Brendan Joseph Gordon Levitt's character eats lunch in the back of the school at that like drainage ditch. That's actually where my friends and I ate lunch during school. We, yeah, because you filmed it at your actual high school, right? We San did. Clemente. Yeah, we filmed it at San Clemente yeah. High School, where where I went. Yeah. yeah. You know, I I read that you said that you had a lot of helplessness and rage back then. Yeah, yeah, I feel I feel like I definitely did. I don't know how much everyone does to some degree during teenage years. You know, I feel like um, being an adult is just realizing you didn't actually connect or know so many of the people, except through the lens of what their place was in this in this social order. Um, maybe things have changed for for high schoolers these days. I don't think so. <laughs> Very possible they haven't. <laughs> Yeah, well. I want to play a, a scene from Brick um, just to give us a sense of the language, the dialogue. And this is a rare scene where there's an adult in the movie. The The whole world is almost completely parentless. Um, so the main character, Brendan, as I said, is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, he's been trying to find out what's happened to his ex-girlfriend, Emily, who's gone missing. She's gotten involved with this like bad druggy crowd. And he's been trying to snoop out what's been happening. Right before the scene, he's been punched and knocked out by this heavy, and he's been brought into the assistant fights principal's office. And they have a relationship because in the past, like Brendan helped bust like a local high school drug dealer named Jared. In this scene, the vice principal is played by Richard Roundtree. And this is kind of like the scene in film noir, like where the detective gets like pulled into the police department to get yelled at. So you didn't know this boy? No, sir. Never seen him. Mm. And he just hit you. Like I said, he asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. Okay, Brandon. I've been looking to talk to you, man. You've helped this office out before. No. I gave you chair to see him eaten, not to see you fed. Fine. Very well put. Accelerated English, Mrs. Kasperzik. Tough teacher. Tough, but fair. Okay. We know you're clean. And you've, despite your motives, you've always been an asset to this office. And you're a good kid. Uh-huh. I want to run some names past you. Hold it, we're not done here. I was done here three months ago. I told you then I'd give you Jer, and that was that. I'm not your inside line, and I'm not your boy. That's not very You helpful. know what I'm in if the wrong Yeg saw me pulled in here? What are you in? No. And no more of these informal chats either. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. And I'll see you at the parent conference. <laughs> That's a great scene from Brick, the first movie by my guest, uh, Ryan Johnson. Ryan, I love that, I love that line. I'll see you at the parent conference. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I mean, two things, the, the VP, uh, this kind of a stand in for our chief of police there is, is played by the great Richard Roundtree, who, um, besides just being a lovely guy who <laughs> came into this very, very weird movie for one day and God bless him, uh, knocked it out of the park. He's, I, I was excited because Shaft, um, is, Kind of like a similar animal. It's 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 uh, very much repositioning the classic kind of Hammett PI. Um, in that case, kind of in the black exploitation genre, and so um, it was it was fun to have Richard in the movie. Also, the English teacher that uh, that Joe mentions, um, Mrs. Kasperzik. That's Sheila Kasperzik was my high school English teacher, who was very tough but fair. Um, she passed away a few years ago and she, she is, was the first person to kind of encourage me seriously as a writer and taking her class at San Clemente High is a big part of the reason I, um, I'm, I'm writing stories for a living today. We're listening to the interview our producer Sam Brigger recorded with screenwriter and director Ryan Johnson about his new murder mystery comedy Glass Onion. It's a sequel to his movie Knives Out. We'll hear more of their interview after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to our interview with screenwriter and director Ryan Johnson. His new film, Glass Onion, is a sequel to his popular comedic murder mystery, Knives Out. Johnson's other films include Brick, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, and Star Wars, The Last Jedi. He spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. So when you were growing up, like, what were the kind of movies that, like, really caught your attention and made you think, like, oh, that's what I want to do? Well, I mean, as a kid, it was the same cloud of stuff that, you know, it's probably the same for everybody. But my whole family loves movies. And my dad, even though he wasn't in the business at all, he loved movies and, and kind of really worshipped film directors. And so... My dad introduced me to Scorsese and showed me Raging Bull. And um, through the lens of here is an artist who is really um, who's really doing something. And uh, my granddad loved Fellini. And I think that's very important. Like as a as a young person, seeing not just watching these movies and being exposed to them, but for me, uh, seeing it through the lens of their respect for this thing. And um, in that way, it, this kind of it was this revered object that I felt like I was being let in on, um, and so that kind of led to opening up when I got into film school. Then it was, you know, I, I just watched three or four movies a day sometimes, and would just absorb kind of all the film school canon. And I, I think you've said that your dad's love of movies actually like manifested like he would have liked to have been in the movies. Like, did, did he sort of wish that he had been a, a filmmaker, like a director? Yeah, I think he really did. He was um, he, he was trying to write a script, and he, I think honestly, he wanted to be. He wishes he was an actor. He was a real ham. He passed away some years ago. But he was when he was around. He was he was a real. He was a larger than life guy, and uh, I, I think ultimately he he wishes he had been <laughs> a movie star. I gave him, but before he passed, we we I I did. Um, uh, put him in my film Looper. He's he's briefly in the scene. He gets shot in the face by Bruce Willis, which <laughs> he's one of the, the <laughs> yes, victims. I have this great <laughs> shot of. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, exactly. Oh, he loved it. He was in Hog Heaven. There's a great shot of him with like his bloody makeup face, hugging Bruce Willis, and he has the biggest smile on his face. <laughs> 
So uh, did he encourage you to go into the movie business? Yeah, he was He was always my biggest cheerleader uh, in going into it. And um, he absolutely loved it. And uh, yeah, I mean, if there's, if there's any just bittersweetness to the whole thing, it's just, I, you know, he passed away a few months before I was um, approached for the Star Wars job. And that would have been, I can only imagine. And that's so much of making movies since then is always framed by, you know, my God, what would, what would dad say if he were here right now? I guess he had seen you have some success though before then. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that was a, that was a big star Wars, man. I never, and he would have said that he would have literally brought a tent and lived on that set. I would never have. (laughs) (laughs) Probably need another role as a stormtrooper or something like that. Yeah. Oh my God. Are you kidding? No, he would, (laughs) he would sure he would be lobbying for a much bigger part this time. (laughs) Well, um, in 2017, you did, um, star Wars, the last Jedi, uh, this was the second film in the final Star Wars trilogy. And I, I've heard you describe yourself as a Star Wars fan. Was this like a dream come true to you? This was the ultimate dream come true. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was the heavens opening and <laughs> everything that all the cliches you can imagine. And and the whole process also, um, soup to nuts, the whole thing from writing it to working in Pinewood Studios and working with those amazing craftsmen and those actors and shooting a Star Wars movie to putting it out and the experience over the past few years of of getting to know Star Wars fans and and, and people connecting to the movie and and talking to me about it. I mean, the entire thing has just been, you know, I don't know that I'll ever, it feels like a mountain in the middle of my life. I doubt I'll ever top it, you know, in terms of just the breadth and depth of the experience. Uh, Had you, like thought about as a young person or even as you aged like things that you would put into your star wars movie if it ever happened i mean no i didn't really have like a wish list of oh wouldn't it be cool if bloody do um first of all i was continuing a story so it, it very much had a starting point and so i had a foundation to work off of and i was really i mean yeah man i was i was trying to get everything that i love about star wars into one movie we had talked a little bit about the approach to genre and trying to, and that sometimes in getting the heart of something in a way that's actually going to make audiences feel something beyond nostalgia, that sometimes you have to um, find a new way into it. or um, And so that, that was another element of it, but, but all in the... Um, what I want is to make make audiences feel the way I felt as a kid watching The Empire Strikes Back. And that was a very terrifying, disorienting experience. You know, I think if you shake off kind of the lens of nostalgia and remember your experience as a kid watching that movie, it's pretty scary. And and the the I think the twist of I Am Your Father um, holds, you know, the same power that... Um, that a great fairy tale or a great myth holds. Um, and that's because it connects up in a terrifying way with some of our, um, you know, some of the, the deepest fears that you have inside you when you're going through that adolescent transition in your life. So anyway, all to say that my goal was to actually create that feeling when watching it, um, not just remind people of when they had that feeling however many years ago. 
you know, there's a lot of playfulness in your movie that, for me, harken back to the the first Star Wars movie. I f- feel like maybe some of the other ones um, were less funny or or took themselves maybe too seriously. But like, for example, you have a, a scene where it looks like this triangular spaceship is landing and all their steam is coming out of it. And then it turns out like it's just the bottom of a clothing iron that a robot's using to press this uniform. And Luke Skywalker is milking this really strange looking walrus like in order to get something to drink on his remote island. Um, I don't know. I just liked I liked how you added those sort of touches of humor. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, again, talking about just getting stuff that felt Star Warsy to me, I I was probably a little too young for The Empire Strikes Back when I saw it. That probably is why it had such a profound effect on me. But I was the perfect age when Return of the Jedi was in theaters. And Return of the Jedi that, you know, has a lot more of the type of humor that you're talking about and isn't afraid of being <laughs> slightly slightly goofy at times, you know, and having fun and having that tone or even like even the Star Wars, like there's just like this sort of Hollywood winking to it. That's like like this is a big spectacular fun thing, you know? Absolutely. I mean? Well, and they they had fun. I mean, there was there's a scene that should be the most serious, dire scene in the entire movie where they're, you know, they have they're doing this ruse that Chewie has like handcuffs on, and they're taking him down the hallway. They're in the middle of the Death Star. They're in the they're behind enemy lines. Their lives are threatened in every moment. A little droid, like the little wheeler droid, comes up. And it's a very dangerous situation, and Chewie roars at it. The droid then scampers away like a little dog, and then Chewie turns to, you know, turn, turns to Luke and does like a comic shrug. I don't know. That, that's, that feels as baked into the bones of, of what Star Wars is to me as anything else, you know? You know, the, the film was, was very well received um, critically um, and, and did very well. Um, there was this—, this it's no other way to describe it, like racist and sexist blowback that some people who saw it like just didn't really like that some of the main characters weren't white and male. And like even some of the cast was harassed after the movie came out. This has become like a real issue recently, but sort of when The Last Jedi came out, that felt, I mean, scary, but, but new. Like, did, were you surprised by that reaction? Yeah, and I, I also always want to make a differentiation here. There's there's what you're talking about, which is kind of the rancid, um, the rancid part of it. There are also people who just didn't didn't like the movie and didn't like you know what I was saying, and, and making sure, but making sure. I, I just always want to make that separation so it doesn't seem like we're conflating those two. Um, I'm talking about the people that didn't like having female leads or people of color as leads. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, if it it completely, it probably shouldn't have, but um, because there had been some rumblings of it um, when the Force Awakens came out, but it, it, the tidal wave definitely broke broke open <laughs> around the time that our movie came out, and um, yeah, man, I mean, look, it, it's something that I think fan culture is has been kind of figuring out how to deal with. I mean, I feel like. At least my current thinking on it is: you got to call it out, you got to stomp it out, you got to shout it down, you got to make it very vocally um, apparent that it's not welcome in our space. Um, and I think for a while there was the question of: does that just amplify it? Should you not feed the trolls? And I feel like I don't know, man. I feel like you gotta <laughs> you gotta punch some Nazis, you know? <laughs> you gotta get them out the door. We need to take a short break. 
If you're just joining us, our guest is filmmaker Ryan Johnson. He has a new movie, Glass Onion, which is a sequel to his very popular murder mystery comedy, Knives Out. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with filmmaker Ryan Johnson. His new movie is Glass Onion, which is a sequel to his very popular murder mystery comedy, Knives Out. Um, so, you know, watching all your films this past week, like I started to see some patterns in them and perhaps I was seeing patterns where they You're in too any, deep, Sam. You're but, in too um, deep. Pull out. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> well I, one thing I was wondering, and this is kind of a weird question, is um, whether or not you have a fascination with drain pipes, sewers, and underground tunnels. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I mean, talk about a potent image, <laughs> I guess. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It makes me think. I, I do have a fascination with, uh, um, I mean, for instance, like the, I can think of plenty of movies that tap into that. Like there's that great shot in Barton Fink where it goes into the sink drain. Um, so not to the point where I have it up on the mood board or something in my <laughs> in my writing <laughs> office, but, but I think it's also... Um, the notion of, of of burying stuff, the notion of um, of dark places where things are hidden, I think um, uh, that's that's probably what I'm, you know, tapping into when I when I when I put a tunnel on the screen. <laughs> well, speaking of mood boards, um, I when I watched the Brothers Bloom, I noticed that the Mark Ruffalo character. This is this is a movie about con games, and um, he creates these very elaborate diagrams of the con that they're about to put on. And then I also noticed that in the Glass Onion, a very similar diagram plays an important uh, role in that movie. Like, are you a diagrammer? Like, is that how you plot out your films? That's exactly how I write. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's that's a one to one. <laughs> you you rang the bell on that one. Yes. <laughs> so you have all these boxes with arrows going all over. The I wouldn't place. read that much into it, Sam. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I draw it a little bit differently. I do arcs. I, I draw like a line across the page and kind of do little cross hatches and, and split it up into sequences. Um, uh, but I work in outline form for the first ninety percent of the writing process. I'm a big structure guy, and I don't sit down and write the script until the very, 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 very end of the process. I'm a, I'm a planner. I'm a diagrammer. I'm, I'm I need to figure out the roadmap before I write. So the thing about the genre of con movies is that that as an audience, you're always trying to figure out like what's part of the con. Like, is this real or is this the con? And at the end, there's usually this final twist. And it turns out that the thing you thought was real, like this tragic ending, is still part of the con. Again, like sort of like your Knives Out movies, in my opinion, you kind of turn that on its head for this movie. Yeah, a little bit, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I spent my 20s trying to get my first movie made. I got a shot to do a second movie, and it was <laughs> it was kind of like trying to stuff a tomato into a matchbox. I just had all this stuff that I wanted to get into it, and, and it's kind of overflowing with stuff that I love. And a big part of that, yeah, is, is this, uh, you know, the, the notion of creating this all-encompassing fiction of a con, um, the notion of just looking at that as, as storytelling and kind of the healthy on un- the healthy aspects of that. Um, it also, yeah, I don't know, not to turn this into a therapy session, but I, I was having grown up, um, religious and like very personally religious and then kind of falling out, having fallen out of that, 
coming into my 20s, the notion of how you frame the world and the stories that you tell your perception of the world through and can those change. Um, that, uh, that was also something that was very much fed into, fed into that movie. What religion did you grow up as? I was Christian. I was just kind of, we were, it was a youth group kid in Orange County, so it was kind of Orange County Protestant. But, but it was a very personal thing, from personal belief. It was not just I went to church every Sunday with my parents. I very much um, was in it and framed the world through, uh, through that lens. Was, was there like a specific moment where you broke away from religion, or was it like a gradual progression? No, it was, it was a fairly quick but gradual progression. There was no, <laughs> you know, there was no seeing the dying horse on the side of the road and, dear God, who would ever allow this? You know, there was no moment like that. Not, nothing out of a Dostoevsky novel is just kind of going to college, getting out of sort of the bubble of, of you know, of the world that I had been in and meeting new people. And, and, um, but yeah, yeah, when it happened, it happened fairly quickly. Have you sort of tried to replace that framing with something else? One thing that I did very much help the transition through my 20s was um, my dad had been really into Carl Jung, and so picking up Jung's books, and um, uh, there was something about kind of being able to transfer what I projected on an outside entity of, of God take that same thing and realize, okay, I wasn't crazy. It's just what I was feeling was the internal structure of my psyche and the self uh, as kind of um, sort of, and that's actually what I was having a relationship with um, are these things inside, inside my own sense of self, you know? So very much helped me kind of like uh, um, transition into a view of the world that made sense. You know, I'm not, I'm certainly not a Jungian, um, but I I know that Jung talks a lot about archetypes. Was did that influence the way that you sort of thought about characters and roles in your movies? Hugely, yeah, hugely. And um, the the way that he takes archetypes and um, and also dream images. Um, you know, we talked. You asked me before about tunnels and, <laughs> and holes and the notion of tapping into something that's the, the way that Jung describes the difference between a, a, a symbol and an allegory, where an allegory is kind of a cheap coin of this represents that versus a symbol is something that in a almost undefinable way evokes something else in the human psyche. And um, getting deeply into the archetypes that, that Jung draws was a huge huge thing that kind of guided how I think about characters in movies. So are you uh, writing the next Knives Out mystery? Yeah, right now I'm, I'm, I got a cloud of ideas going. I haven't really struck on the thing that makes it all locked together, but I'm, I'm starting, I'm trying to get ahead of the game and, and trying to kind of figure out what, what it's going to be. I mean, it's incredibly exciting to me. Like, I, I guess I, I kind of expected I would, it would be healthy to do something completely different next before I made another Benoit Blanc mystery. But the reality is I just keep coming back to being excited by what the third movie can be, how it could be completely different from, from the first two. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm into it. Great. Well, I, I look forward to seeing that. Um, Ryan Johnson, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Sam. Ryan Johnson spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Johnson wrote and directed the new film Glass Onion, a sequel to his film Knives Out. Glass Onion will start streaming on Netflix December 23rd. This is Fresh Air. 
This is Fresh Air. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has two recommendations for mystery lovers looking for a twist on the traditional whodunit. For holiday gift-giving or reading, I've got two non-traditional mysteries to recommend. One is genre-bending. The other features a detective who specializes in underwater investigations. Jane Smiley has been a shapeshifter all throughout her long career. Her fiction has spanned domestic dramas, like her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Thousand Acres, to her academic satire, Moo, to speculative Norse history in The Greenlanders. Her latest novel is a mashup of a Western, a serial killer mystery, and a feminist erotic romp. A Dangerous Business is set in Monterey, California, during the Gold Rush era. Heroine Eliza Ripple is a young widow whose brutish husband was killed in a bar fight. Eliza shed no tears. In fact, she's happy earning her living in a local bordello. Not since Miss Kitty on Gunsmoke hosted Marshall Dillon, Chester, and Doc every night at the Long Branch Saloon has life in a body house seemed so amiable. But the atmosphere quickly shifts from risque to downright risky after two fellow working girls go missing. Eliza's boss, a madam who exudes the world-weary wisdom of someone who's been around the block more than once, tells her, Between you and me, being a woman is a dangerous business, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Around this same time, Eliza is befriended by another young woman named Jean, who offers her services at the Pearly Gates, a bordello that attends to the needs of ladies, not men. Jean sometimes wears men's clothes and avails herself of male privileges, like taking Eliza on long walks down to the docks and into the surrounding woodlands. She also introduces Eliza to Edgar Allan Poe's detective stories, starting with The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Soon enough, Eliza and Jean will be emulating Poe's detective, Monsieur Dupin, as they take it upon themselves to investigate the mystery of the missing girls, a mystery the male authorities in Monterey are content to ignore. The solution to the serial killings turns out to be utterly unexpected, but it's really the story of Eliza that commands attention, a woman stranded at the edge of the Pacific who's determined to hold on to her newfound autonomy. I miss Shelby Van Pelt's debut novel, Remarkably Bright Creatures, when it came out this past May, but its weird premise kept calling to me. An elderly woman named Tova works nights at an aquarium on the Puget Sound. She doesn't need the job, but scrubbing floors and fish tanks keeps her mind off her teenage son's disappearance 30 years ago. Watching Tova from his tank is the aquarium's main attraction, a giant Pacific octopus named Marcellus. One night, Tova frees Marcellus from a near-fatal entanglement with a power cord. 
In return, Marcellus silently resolves to use his knowledge of the sea and his superior memory for faces and objects to help Tova discover the truth about her son's fate. I had my doubts about this detecting duo of janitor and tentacled gumshoe. I thought it might be too cute. But as Marcellus might joke, I was a sucker for thinking so. His voice, which alternates with chapters featuring Tova and other characters, is scornful and sad. Here's a snippet of Marcellus's introduction. Each evening, I await the click of the overhead lights, leaving only the glow from the main tank. Almost darkness, like the middle bottom of the sea. I lived there before I was captured and imprisoned. I must advise you that our time together may be brief. The plaque on my tank states the average lifespan of a giant Pacific octopus, four years. I was brought here as a juvenile. I shall die here in this tank. At the very most, 160 days remain until my sentence is complete. Like a noir detective, Marcellus looks the ultimate deadline of death in the eye and doesn't blink. Both of these strange and freshly imagined stories go deeper into uncharted territory for the mystery novel. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed A Dangerous Business by Jane Smiley and Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, while democracy is being threatened in many parts of the world, we'll talk about the attack on American democracy from inside the country during World War I and the period just after. American white nationalist groups were on the rise, the labor movement was under attack, and the U.S. government was spying on legal organizations and censoring the press. Our guest will be Adam Hochschild, author of American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.